0: Let's pray together and ask God to meet us in the Word. Lord, we love the, the treasure we have in your scriptures. And we we ask that you would make this alive in our hearts, make this passage alive in our hearts today. And we know, Lord, that apart from your work in our hearts, it's just words on the page, but that when you pour out your spirit upon us, these words become alive, and they're life giving and they're God-revealing and faith-building. And so that's what we long for. Lord, I long for that in my own heart more right now, and I long for that for each of us, that we would meet you, living Jesus, in the pages of your scriptures today. So come, help me, help us, build your church through your word, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Good. Let's recap where we've uh, come from in this series, which is called the Story of God. Just to kind of give you reviews, bring us up to up to where we are now. We started with eternity past a few weeks ago now, and we saw that God has always been. The Bible teaches there's never been a time when God was not, and that from from as far back as you can think, God's always been, and He's always been full of celebration and exuberance, passionate joy in seeing his perfections displayed in each person of the Trinity. So the Father's rejoicing in his in his full perfections in the Son and the Spirit. And the Son is rejoicing in His perfections in the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit's rejoicing in His perfections displayed in the Father and the Son. And there's this holy, exuberant, passionate community of joy in celebrating their perfection as God. And then flowing out of this joy, God decided to create in order to display his perfection so that it could be, he could go public with it so that he could share with us, created beings, so he could share with us the joy that he has in beholding his glory, his perfections. And so we saw back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God created the universe and then he created the world. And he created in this world, Garden of Eden, a paradise. And then in something that is just such an amazing display of mercy and goodness, he created Adam and Eve out of nothing, gave them the gift of life, gave them bodies like you have that are just amazing, brought them together as husband and wife, promised to provide for their every need and best of all gave them fellowship with him so that they could have the the heart-filling, satisfying experience of knowing God, beholding God, walking with God, trusting God. And God said, all this will continue forever, forever, if you'll just trust me. You've seen my goodness, you've seen my wisdom, you've seen my power, you've seen all that I am. Now just, just keep trusting me, trust me Trust me to provide for you. Trust me to guide you into what's good and not good. Trust me to keep satisfying you. Just trust me and it'll go on forever. So we saw in Genesis chapter three, what Adam and Eve did. They did what you've done and what I've done. We've all turned our backs on God. Adam and Eve decided they wanted to call the shots. They wanted to decide what's going to be good for them. What's going to be not going to be good for them. They wanted to be in control Independent They turned their backs on God and walked away. It's what the Bible calls sin. We've all done it. Adam and Eve did it did it. and so because of that, God brought His punishment upon them, and God brought His curse upon the world. And then, in Genesis four through eleven, we saw two things. One is we saw as sin spread throughout the world, we saw that God shows us what sin deserves Noah's flood. God killed, he drowned everyone on the earth, except for Noah and his family, eight people. Everyone else was killed because everyone else was godless, turning their backs on God. But even after Noah's flood, people kept spreading throughout the world. The world was full of people, but there was no one, when you get to Genesis 10 and 11, there's no one on the world who's walking with God. There's no one who's trusting God. There's no one who's calling upon God. Anywhere in the world, the world is full of People who've all turned their backs on God. That's what's happening. Then in Genesis 12, God does something that's just stunning. Because of what Jesus would do thousands of years in the future, he brought his power upon a godless, proud, wicked moon worshiper named Abram. And God changed Abram's heart. Subdued his rebellious will. Gave him faith and repentance. Abram turned and trusted God. And here's what God promises him. This is amazing. Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give this great nation an amazing land. And through your offspring, through someone in this nation, I'm going to bring my blessing. Blessing of forgiveness, heart change, the heart satisfaction of knowing me. I'm going to bring my blessing through someone in your nation. I'm going to bring my blessing to every. People group on the face of the earth. So God promised to to Abraham, Genesis chapter twelve. So now as the story unfolds, here we are. We're, we're up to this point, and so now what, we're, what are we expecting? We're waiting for God to bring Abraham's offspring and make them into a great nation and give them a great land. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has twelve sons. I'm going through lots of chapters here. God miraculously orchestrates things. So even though there's a big famine up in the promised land, God moves Jacob and his 12 sons and all their kids down into Egypt where they're all happily fed for a number of years and they're doing fine. Multiplying, multiplying, multiplying down in Egypt. But then things turn ugly. Okay, They're getting so big, Pharaoh's getting nervous. Multiplying, multiplying, multiplying. He says, they could take over. So we're just simply going to enslave them. So massive change. Absolute slave labor was their status. God's people, Abraham's offspring in Egypt. And don't, don't miss out. Egypt was like the premier superpower of the time. So if Egypt, Pharaoh, who's got basically the power over all the soldiers, all the wealth, all the food, everything, Israel was totally powerless as slaves under Egypt. But we're looking for God to fulfill his promise to Abram. When are they going to become a great nation? And when are you going to give them an amazing land? So what does Israel do? To answer that question, let's turn to Exodus chapter 2 and see what happens next. Now, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. I want you all to be able to look, look these passages up. I've got a number of passages to look at today. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is page 46 in the Bibles that we're passing out. It's an amazing story of what happens here. Exodus chapter 2, look at verses 23 and 25. That's page 46 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Y'all got that? Exodus 2 23 and 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, another Pharaoh rose up, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Remember, they're powerless. They can't do anything. Pharaoh, Egypt, has enslaved them. They are going to be slaves. That's end of story as far as on the human level. But they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, Abraham's offspring. And God knew, Promise, knew what he was going to do. So God remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was going to make Abraham's offspring a great nation and give them an amazing land. And so God decides to deliver Israel from Egypt, right? Y'all probably heard this story before if you grew up in church or Sunday school. So what does God do to deliver Israel from Egypt? What does he do? Okay, first of all, as you know the story, he raises up Moses. And he gives Moses the ability to work miracles. And then he tells Moses, go to Pharaoh. Work the miracles. And then tell Pharaoh what? Let my people go. Okay? So Moses... Here's miraculous power. Go to Pharaoh. Work the miracles and say, okay, there, you've seen that now. God says, let my people go. But then look at what God says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. This is very strange what God says next. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses... When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. Do all the miracles. But, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What? Work all the miracles... And then what I'm going to do, Moses, while you're working the miracles, I'm going to harden his heart so he'll say no. And we am going to come back to that in a moment, but let me just explain a little bit about this God hardening his heart thing. All through these chapters, from Exodus 1 through about 14, we read two things numerous times. One is God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's one thing we read. But then in other places we read... Pharaoh hardens his own heart. We read both of them. And the reason we read both of them, I think, is because both are always absolutely true. In other words, the Bible teaches two things. You've got to keep these in mind. Hold these together. One thing the Bible teaches is that we make decisions that are authentic, willed, decisions for which we are justly held responsible. Pharaoh hardened his heart. We make decisions that are real, authentic decisions. The Bible also teaches that ultimately behind all of our decisions and governing our decisions is God in his sovereign authority. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both Are taught, both are true. How do those two fit together? I don't know. But they do. And through church history, one of the problems has been that because we have a hard time fitting those together, groups have tended to elevate one and kind of forget about the other, or elevate the other and kind of forget about the other one, when we need to simply hold both together. We make decisions that are authentic, willed decisions for which we are justly held accountable. Every one of our decisions is like that. At the same time, God is ultimately governing all of our decisions with his sovereign authority. Both are true. We see them both here. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So, here's what's happening. Moses, go work your miracles, and God's saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And the result of that is going to be that Pharaoh is going to want to choose to willfully, freely, voluntarily, in a way that I'm going to hold him accountable for, harden his own hearts, so he will not let Israel go. That is the strangest mission to send somebody on. Commission Moses scratching his head. Why? So let's ask the question, why does God harden Pharaoh's hearts? What's God doing? Look at Exodus 11, verse 9. This is an amazing display of mercy on God's part. Why does God start off hardening Pharaoh's heart? Exodus eleven nine. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Here's why. That, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God wants to multiply his wonders, his his miracles, his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. See, God could have said, Moses, go work one miracle. I'm going to soften Pharaoh's heart. He'll let the people go. Israel would have been very happy. That's not what God wanted to do. Moses, go work a miracle. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So there will need to be another miracle. I'm going to harden his hearts. There will be another miracle. I'm going to harden his hearts. There will be another miracle. I want miracle after miracle after miracle. I want more miracles. More miracles. More miracles. Why? Why? Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Why does God want to multiply all these miracles? Not just one. Oh, no. I want to multiply miracles. Exodus 10, 1 through 3. One and two. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh. I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs, multiply these signs of mine among them. Here's why. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Here's the punchline. That you may know that I am the Lord. So here's the picture. God could have just said, Moses, go work one miracle. I'm going to soften Pharaoh's heart. He'll let Israel go. One little miracle. Bloop. Okay. No, 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 no. He says, I want, I want Israel to know that I'm the Lord. I want Israel to see that I am God. And there's other verses. I've got them in your notes there. I won't have us look at them now. Not just, I want Israel to know that I'm God. I want Pharaoh to see that I'm God. And not just Pharaoh, I want Egypt, all of Egypt, to see that I'm God. And not just all of Egypt, I want the whole world to be rocked with this amazing display of my glory and my power here through multiplying miracle after miracle after miracle. I love that word signs here in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. See, all of humanity's moving towards destruction, okay? And God says, I'm not just going to plant one little sign, boop, turn left, No, I want there to be sign, 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 sign. You know those places where you drive by the freeway and there's sign for this and the same sign time after time. I want multiple signs. So as humanity is walking towards destruction, it's like turn towards God. Sign, 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 sign. You go past them. Sign, 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 sign. Multiple signs because he wants Pharaoh to know that he's God. He wants Israel to know that he's God. He wants Egypt to know that he's God. He wants the whole world to know he is God. I, just, I love this about God. Now, just one little side note. I love this. Years later, Joshua leading Israel into the promised land, and they want to capture Jericho. Remember who they meet up with in Jericho before they come in? Rahab. Am I getting the details right? Do you remember what Rahab says when they first meet her? We heard about what God did in Egypt, it worked. This multiplying of signs and wonders. Now, see, this is for our, this is for our our benefit. This is for our good that God's multiple, this is for Egypt's good. This is for Pharaoh's good. This is for Israel's good. This is for your good. God is multiplying his signs and wonders in this instance in history so that we would see sign after sign after sign. God, 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 multiple signs and wonders. God, 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 so that we would see and know God. Is God. So here's the question. One question. Do you know this morning that God is God? You might know something about God. God is whatever. But do you know that God is God? Do you understand? Do you see who God is in his fullness? None of us sees it clearly enough. So we all need this passage. We all need this. So, how does God show us he's God? Let's let God just show us. Let's walk through these miracles, these signs, these wonders. Remember, each of these are a sign. And if you see a sign, you aren't left looking at the sign, right? What's the point of a sign? It's it's pointing you to something else. You look at what the sign's pointing to. Okay, so we see these signs, we're going to see 12 of them, okay? Intro, 10 plagues, conclusion, we're going to see 12 signs, and each of them are pointing to to God. So don't get preoccupied with the sign, let the sign point you to, to God. How does God show us he's God? Okay, now this is a long chunk of scripture. I'm going to really abbreviate these. Please, please, please read these for yourself. They're so powerful. Let's just go through them. First of all, God starts with a miracle that kind of sets the stage. Uh, This is Exodus 7, 10 through 13. Aaron and Moses, their brothers, Aaron and Moses go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, prove yourselves. So Aaron, it's like God told him to, threw his staff down at the ground. Remember what happens? Staff becomes a snake. Okay? Pharaoh says, okay, magicians, go ahead. Pharaoh's magicians throw their staffs down. They become snakes. Okay? Arrow's snake staff eats up the snake staffs of pharaoh's magicians pharaoh's heart is hard though just as god said no change that's just the one that sets the stage there's this whole magician's thing going on okay i'm going to try to remember to trace this out it's kind of kind of interesting um they end up walking away though in shame you'll see in a moment okay then the 10 plagues come first of all god turns all the water in egypt Nile River, all the water in all their basins, cisterns, watering, troughs, everything. It turns into blood. Exodus seven fourteen through 25. Moses and Aaron meet Pharaoh as he's on his way to probably wash in the Nile in the morning. And they say to him, God's told you to let his people go. You haven't obeyed him. God's going to turn the Nile and all the water in Egypt into blood. And Aaron lifts up his staff. Blood. Nile River. Blood. All the bowls and everything. Now, some of you might wonder if this literally happened. I mean, really? Nile, blood. Okay, now, two thoughts. I think it did. Here's, here's, here's some reasons why. First of all, Moses writes this describing something that's history. He says, the Nile turned into blood. That's what he says. Okay, it's, this is history. This is not Revelation, which is a lot of figurative language. This, this is history. Secondly, if there's a God who created the heavens and the earth, Genesis one one. okay? A few chapters before. If there's a God who created 50 million galaxies of 100,000 light years wide galaxies, 50 million of them, if there's a God who's that big, can he reach down, 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 this little earth, right? And turn the water, that little Nile into blood, that's like totally small potatoes for him. Okay? I mean, this is not a problem. This is not a problem. Genesis one: 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke a word. 50 million galaxies, 100,000 light years wide. Each of them. Okay? That's big. Nile, blood, not big. Okay? It's easy. This happened. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard, just as God had said it would. Second. So these are signs. God. Look at God. See God. God causes frogs to fill the land. Exodus 8, 1 through 15. So God tells Moses, Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. If you refuse, I'm going to cause frogs to swarm, fill the the land, fill your homes, fill your your refrigerators, your, your sinks, you know, your bathtubs, your beds. I mean there's going to be frogs everywhere. And so Aaron stretches out his staff and frogs start coming out from everywhere. This is kind of weird. Then then uh, Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. Well, we can make frogs appear. Pharaoh's probably going, stop it. (laughs) Anyway, so they do it. Then, Then Pharaoh pleads with Moses, okay, 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 okay. I'll let you go. Just ask God to take the frogs away. Moses says, God, take the frogs away. Gone. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. Just as God said he would. Third, it's so signs. See, he's multiplying of signs. Uh, God causes gnats to fill the land. Aaron stretches out his staff. Gnats are on all the people and all the animals. Um, magicians couldn't make gnats appear, though. Okay, it's kind of interesting. Pharaoh's magicians, that didn't work. By the way, how, how could these magicians do anything supernatural? There is, you know, Satan has supernatural power. There's false signs and wonders, right? Okay, Satan's a created being. He's like total, absolute pipsqueak compared to God, but he's got supernatural power. All right, so that's how this happens. But it's limited. Magicians couldn't make gnats. All right. Fourth, Exodus eight twenty to thirty-two, God says to Pharaoh, "Let my people go, or I'm going to cause flies to swarm all over everyone in Egypt." And uh, Pharaoh said no. So God caused flies to swarm everywhere except not in Goshen. Israel was fly free zone right there in Goshen and so Moses or Pharaoh says okay 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 I'll let you go ask God to to relent take the flies away I'll let you go uh, Moses prays God removes the flies Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses just as God said he would fifth Exodus 9 1 through 7 Uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go or God's going to kill all your livestock. Massive loss of wealth, but he's going to save our livestock. And that's exactly what happens. All their livestock killed. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Just like God said, sign. Can you imagine all of a sudden all the livestock killed? Sixth boils on all the people and the animals. Exodus 9, 8 through 12. Boils are like huge, they're like worse than pimples, they're like big infections on your skin, coming out on your skin, extremely painful on all the people and the animals. Even the magicians here get boils, and so they're, they're slinking away. They're, they're done. They're gone. They're, 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 they're going to walk away at this point. You don't read about them anymore. They're out of the picture now. But God hardens Pharaoh's heart, just as God said he would, and Pharaoh is stubborn. Seventh, God destroys their crops with hail. Exodus nine thirteen 13-35. God says to Pharaoh, let my people go, or I'm going to bring hail like you've never seen before, and all the um, crops, and any livestock. Any, this is a different Hebrew word than the previous livestock. I'm not sure what the distinction is there, but to be killed. But if anybody from Egypt who will bring their... Crops and remaining, like domestic animals, maybe under roofs, they'll be protected. So some of the Egyptians, okay, we're learning. We're going to bring them in. We're learning that God is God. We're going to do that. But many did not and had their crops and the remaining livestock killed. But no hail in Goshen. No hail in Goshen. But again, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, like God said. Eighth, Exodus ten one through 20, God brings locusts to eat up any re- remaining crops um, Pharaoh says, "Plead for the locusts to be gone." Moses pleads. God removes the locusts. Pharaoh, or God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And, and just as God said, ninth. So there's kind of an escalation thing going on here. God brings darkness for three days—pitch black darkness. This is Exodus ten twenty-one to twenty-nine, except for in Goshen, absolute pitch black. Darkness. But God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He doesn't relent, just as God said. Okay, now we reach the climax of the plagues, the tenth. This is tragic. God kills the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. Now, let me explain this a little bit. This is just of God to do from a couple different perspectives. One is, um, when an infant dies. I believe the Bible teaches that they, they they do not face God's judgment. They they were not able, they were not mature enough to be able to make a conscious choice to rebel against God. And they they, they go right to heaven. That's my, my understanding of the scriptures. Okay? So that think about that in terms of these firstborn infants as infants, the infants of them being killed. Secondly, God has given life to us and the one who gives life can also take life. Your life is not yours where God's wrong to take it. Right? He's given you life. So God's just to give life, or he's merciful to give life, and he's, it's not unjust of him to take life. Okay. Also, keep in mind that all of Egypt had knowingly turned their backs on God. They'd knowingly turned their backs on God. And so they're simply receiving the just punishment, a a, a small taste of the just punishment that they deserve. So God is absolutely just to do what he does here. So here's this amazing sign of God taking the life of every firstborn in every Egyptian family. Amazing picture of God's justice and of, of God's wrath and his punishment. But this same sign is another amazing picture too, and that's of God's mercy. Because this is where God institutes the Passover. Okay, here's what this means. For talking about justice, all of Israel deserved to have their firstborn sons killed too. In fact, all of Israel and all of Egypt deserved to all be killed because no one had trusted God with the complete trust and faith that God deserves. I mean, think about it. God, all through history, has displayed himself as infinitely good. I mean, he creates life, Adam and Eve, bodies, marriage, satisfies your heart, I'll provide for you. God has displayed himself as being good, good, faithful, good, wise, good, loving, good, 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 always good, completely good, only good, absolutely good. And what does God say? He says, Trust me. And no one in Egypt or in Israel had trusted God the way that God should be trusted. Every single one of them and every single one of us has seen God in all of his goodness and said, I want to call the shots. I don't care who you are anymore. It's time for me to take control of my life. And so all of Israel deserved to be judged too. But God established the Passover. Every Israelite family took a lamb, killed it, took the blood from that lamb and smeared it on the outer doorposts of their front door. And every house that had the blood of a lamb smeared over it, when God came down to kill the firstborn, he passed over those homes that had the blood of the lamb smeared upon them. Not only that, God instituted that night the Passover meal, which the nation of Israel celebrated then and for every year thereafter, where they come together, they're dressed in readiness, certain things that they eat... But the whole the whole point of this is it's to celebrate the remembrance of what God did in passing over them. Okay, now here's here's the question. You've got this, you know, blood painted door. Does that like atone for their sin in some weird cultic way? The answer is no. The the blood-painted door with the blood of a lamb and the Passover meal points ahead, like so many things in the Old Testament do, points ahead to what Jesus will do thousands of years in the future. Remember what John the Baptist said to Jesus the first time he saw him? Shouted this out publicly. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here's this public proclamation of Jesus is the Lamb of God. And what meal... Did Jesus eat with his disciples the night before he was crucified on the cross? It was the Passover. And what did he say at that meal? This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance from now on of me. No more remembrance of that Passover back then. From now on, this Passover meal is then a remembrance of me. It's my blood shed it's my being willing to punish for your sins that's why you don't need to be killed for your unfaithfulness to me it's because I came I was punished I will be punished tomorrow The cross in your place that's how you can be forgiven So the Passover pointed us to what Jesus would do on the cross so here's here's the 10th climactic sign frightening wrath of God killing the firstborn of everyone in Egypt astonishing mercy of God in making a way for people to be forgiven justice and mercy a sign. Do you see that? Didn't stop there though. There's one last sign. This is amazing. Exodus 14. So God says with the firstborn being killed, he says, okay, go. God softens his heart. They go. Israel goes. They're all moving out. Massive nation of Israel And God says, go right towards the Red Sea. There's a problem with that, because the Red Sea, there's no bridges. There's no boats. Okay, Red Sea. And when Pharaoh hears that they're heading towards the Red Sea, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We read it again. So he sends his armies out, all the armies. Go, get them. They're going to be trapped against the Red Sea. Get them. You've heard the story, right? So here's Israel moving towards the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies behind them. And what does God do? It's amazing. It's Moses, lift up your staff. Staff lifted up. The Red Sea's parted. Israel crosses across on dry land. Massive migration of people across the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh's armies come after them into the Red Sea, crossing across on the dry land. And Pharaoh lifts his staff again, and the sea comes back. And they're all drowned. Okay, now... God just delivered Israel from Egypt, right? They cried out to God, deliver us. God delivered them. But oh, do you see that God is doing much, much more here than just delivering Israel? As huge as that is. God is saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart because I I don't want there just to be one sign, one miracle. I want to multiply, multiply signs and wonders and miracles so that Israel will know for sure from then on, I am God. And so that Pharaoh will know, I am God. And so that Egypt will know, I am God. And so that all the world will know that I am God. Now, some of the implications of this, God does not call us to blind faith. Like, there's no evidence for God, there's no evidence for Jesus, but I'm just going to believe anyway. He never calls us to that. Do you see that here? He wants to multiply signs and wonders and evidences for you. You've just got a bunch of signs shown to you. God says, Look at who I am. Do you see my reality? Do you see my power? Do you see my my justice? Do you see my mercy? Do you see my forgiveness? Do you see my deliverance of my people? signs and wonders multiplied for you so that you can see. So see, God doesn't call you to blind faith. He piles the evidence out upon us. The reason, the reason faith is hard. It's not because of lack of evidence. You know why faith is hard for me and why faith is hard for you. It's because of the wickedness in my own heart. I mean, we're just like Adam and Eve total display of God's goodness, faithfulness, provision, everything. Um, I want to be in control. No, no, Okay, that's what I did this morning and that's what I did yesterday and that's what you've done too. So see, the problem with faith is not lack of evidence. That's not why faith is hard. The reason faith is hard is because of our hearts. We have evidence to burn. We have evidence coming out of our ears. Evidence, evidence, evidence. I mean, look at creation outside the windows. Look at sunset, blue skies. Look at your hands, look at your eyes. Look at what God's done. Look at these signs that he's multiplied to us. Okay, one last question. What does God want us to understand about him from these signs and wonders? There's a whole lot of things. I me just mention three that I, I think are especially prominent in this passage. The first one's really sobering, but it's, it's just right there before us. We've got to see it. God punishes all who rebel against him. Right? Here this morning in this passage, God has just given you just like his billboard sign. I punish those who rebel against me. I want you to know, I'm not playing hard to get. I'm not hiding this. I want you all to know. I punish those who rebel against me. Don't rebel. Don't rebel. That's why God's showing the sign to you, right? Don't don't because I will. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm patient but I will punish those who rebel against me. And I would guess that some of you are, are just are rebelling against God this morning. Maybe you've never turned your heart to Christ. Maybe you've never bent the knee before Christ. And you're, you're living in rebellion against him. You might be a fairly decent person on the outside. You might go to church. Okay, you might be a really good wife or a really good husband. But your heart is not Godward. Your heart is looking towards everything else but God as revealed in Jesus, and you're rebelling against Him. And here God wants you to see, I punish those who rebel against me. Others of you, maybe, maybe you just have like a little pocket of rebellion, a little pocket. Uh, you just, you're, you're holding a grudge against someone, and you just like to mull it over every once in a while how they hurt you. Or maybe it's porn. So this little pocket of rebellion, kind of your little secret pocket of rebellion here, or whatever it might be. But see God, in His love and His mercy, is standing before you, and He's multiplied these signs, multiplied these signs, so that it's as clear as can be: I punish those who rebel against me. So please, don't. don't. This is who I am. So you being here today, December 13th, 2009, Sunday morning, is like a a signpost in your life. You've just seen the billboard. You've just heard it clear as day. God punishes those who rebel against him. Do you hear that? This is the real God who's created you, who's created the universe, who's created everything. If you continue in rebellion against him, he will punish you. He loves you. He cares about you. That's why he's warning you. He doesn't want you to continue in rebellion. That's the first sign. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Second, we see that God forgives all who trust Jesus. That's the amazing story of the Passover here. That's what the blood-smeared doorposts is communicating. Israel deserved God's punishment as much as Egypt did. The only difference between Israel and Egypt was that Egypt had the blood-smeared doorposts, which is why God passed over them. That's a picture of what Jesus would do. So the point here is that God forgives all who trust Jesus. He'll forgive you for all of your rebellion. All of your rebellion. Receive Jesus as your Savior just receive him into your life as your Lord. Okay, I bend the knee. You're my Lord. Receive him as your, your heart satisfying treasure. Trust him. That's what trust means. And, and this is amazing. All your sins will be forgiven. All your past sins, all your present sin in your heart right now, and all your future sins, it will all be forgiven. 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 So here's the second sign. God forgives all who trust Jesus. Okay? Big old sign multiplied. Plain as day. Third, God rescues all who call on him through Jesus. Israel was no hopeless fix, right? Clear subplot of the story. Under the thumb of Egypt. Powerless. They, they weren't going to do anything to get, to get out from under Egypt's thumb. And they called upon God to rescue them. What did God do? He rescued them. God rescues Everyone who calls upon him through Jesus. So here's the question. What, what do you need to be rescued from this morning? Well, we've all got all kinds of needs here. Big needs, smaller needs, but they're needs to you, so they're important to God. I mean, maybe just back to that first time, you may feel like, you know, I've, I, I've got a pocket of rebellion against God, and I'm not sure that I could ever be freed from that. It's got me. This area of sins just got me in its grip. But God rescues everyone who calls upon him through Jesus. So I promise you, if you will call upon God through Jesus from the heart and mean it, he will bring his power upon you and you will be changed. You will be changed. You won't become perfect, but you'll be changed. Liberation, freedom will come for that area of of rebellion, which has you in its bondage now. Others of you, may, maybe you're, you're dealing with, uh, you've got a big decision to make. I mean, let's take something a little bit more small, although still big to you, but a decision, you aren't sure which way to go. It's got big ramifications. Should you take this route or this route? What should you do? Call upon God through Jesus Christ. He will guide you. He will tell you, make it clear to you, give you the wisdom you need to know what to do. He will do that. He'll rescue you from confusion or indecision. How about financial pressures? I know a lot of us are struggling with that now, but call upon God. He promises. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Everything you need will be provided for you financially. Everything you need, need, everything you need will be provided for you. Need. That is the operative word, right? But it's an amazing promise. You'll always have everything you need to fulfill God's call on your life if you'll call upon Him through Jesus. Rescue. God will meet you, God will rescue everybody who calls upon Him. So, see, God is the ultimate reality in the universe. God has these signs and wonders multiplying so that we could see that God is God. It's really easy for us to forget about God, to think, you know, it's all about work. It's all about family schedule, cars, roof leaks, flu. It's, we think that that's what life is about. But towering over everything is God. He is what this is all about. God is God. And he's multiplied signs and wonders so that we can see God is God. So that's what I'm praying it will be happening in our hearts right now, that you're seeing God is God, so that she'll repent. If you've been independent from him, you'll trust. If you need to be forgiven by him, you'll call upon him if you need to be rescued by him. So this passage is all about. If I have time for like, maybe a couple of questions. And I always like to do this because you always help maybe like balance out or clarify some things. So what, what questions like percolated up from your mind about this or what things maybe weren't clear? Or maybe I overstated something you'd like to, to find out about that. And if I can't answer it, I'll ask some of you to help, and we'll, we'll figure it out together. He will always provide everything we need to fulfill his call for us. And so, um, that's what Matthew 6.33 says, right? Seek first my kingdom and I righteousness, righteous, and all these things will be added unto you, food and clothing. And we will die. And so, and that that's his perfect plan for us at some point in our lives, and we'll go to be with him. So at every step of the way, perfect provision, perfect provision, perfect provision, perfect provision. Everything we need. All the health we need to fulfill his calling. All the clothing we need to fulfill his calling. So I'm not sure I'm getting to the nub of your question, though. It's certainly speaking of spiritual needs, but he also provides for financial needs. Right? He also provides for physical needs. So, yeah. He will sustain them spiritually for sure. He may take them home or he'll bring them food, whatever will most glorify him and most satisfy the person. And I, I love Exodus because it just, it, you know that, that's a big, huge question. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. I love how Exodus, second book of the Bible, has it taught so clearly. Both truths. We make real choices for which we're accountable. Pharaoh hardened his heart, but God is ultimately governing everything. So he's sovereign. Both are true. So that may not have helped anymore. But anyway, that's just one to restate it. So We'd like to think we would, we would have owned up sooner. Um, God, Pharaoh is always hardening his own heart all the way through until the end. And God's hardening his heart all the way through until the end. Um, we'd like to think, you know, isn't Pharaoh at some point thinking, you know, why is my heart so hard? But no, he's hardening his own heart. So God's, this this gets a little bit probably too deep, but God's hardening is, it works in such a way that we are hardening. I mean, our choices are there. They're real. God doesn't hold a gun to Pharaoh's head. God doesn't make Pharaoh do something against his will. It's Pharaoh choosing and God's governing always. So, We'd like to think that, for, that we'd, we would have owned it after like the second plague, right? You'd like to think? But, I mean, think about it. How far have you gone in the foolishness of sin? I mean, how far have I gone in the foolishness of sin? I'm like there step in step with Pharaoh. I know. I know that. Right? We talked about Tiger Woods last week, right? Okay? But, anyway, I'm probably getting digger, a deeper hole for me here. I think what the Bible teaches is that that when when I make a a decision that's by faith and for God's glory, I thank him for enabling me to do it. And when I sin, I say, look what happens when God lifts his gracious hand off of me. This is what Fuller does all the time. That's just how I operate. So I think it's it's the the biblical paradigm of how, how we work it there. Well, if it, if, it, if it was a decision that was by His grace and for his, for, your, for his glory, by His grace, for your good, and it was righteous and from faith, and you thank, then it was Him, Him working in you, right? And if it wasn't, then we, that's what happens when He lifts His hand off us, and that's, that's where I go all the time. Okay, let's pray together. Let's stand. So I praise you, Father, that you out of your love for us multiply your signs and multiply your wonders so that we will know that you are God. You don't hide away and blame us for not seeing or knowing you multiply your signs and wonders, big billboards for us to see who you are. And I pray, Oh God, I pray for each of us that we would see that you do punish all who rebel against you and you let us know that. So we'll repent and you do forgive all those who trust Jesus and you display that to us so that we'll trust Jesus and you will rescue all who call upon you through Jesus and you display that to us. So we'll call upon you through Jesus. So here we are just billboards, massive billboards of who you are We say, yes, Lord, we repent before you, we trust Jesus, and we call upon you for our needs through Jesus. So thank you for what a a revealing, disclosing, displaying God you are. We want to say, yes, we respond to you right now. So, Lord, this week, help us to surrender, help us to trust Jesus, and help us to call upon you through Jesus.